You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Former archaeologist Kurt Mankey is a geospatial generalist based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He founded Bird's Eye View to apply his expertise with GIS technology towards solving the world's mounting ecological, economic, and social issues. His areas of focus are public health, conservation, and education. Kurt has a broad skill set. He's a spatial analyst, cartographer, web map developer, trainer, teacher, and author. He is also one of the newest members of the Rewilding Leadership Council. Kurt has been involved in tons of conservation mapping projects, including one we talk about today in depth, the very successful Tahiris Canyon Wildlife Passage. We start with a bit of background before we really geek out on the vital importance of mapping to rewilding projects around the world. I've been working with the conservation community for 20 years. And over that 20 years, I've probably worked with almost every nonprofit, some that don't even exist anymore in the Western US. And um, it's usually very tight turnarounds. I, it's not uncommon for someone to just call me up and ask me for a map and a, when, when do you need it? Tomorrow. and that's yeah. a very difficult problem that I have is juggling, trying to be responsive to quick turnarounds. But yeah. I make maps for people. I do analyses for people. So by an analysis, I mean I can do something like determine where suitable bear habitat is or where's the most optimum corridor that a wolf might travel between two protected areas, that kind of thing. What's really cool about it and that I don't think a lot of people understand is you have access to gazillions of data points. Like it's not just mapping. In fact, it really kind of doesn't capture it at all to just say he's the map guy. In fact, you should take that as a derogatory thing because it's not at all really what it is you guys really do. Yeah. So if, if it's a map, first of all, I always try to think about, you know, this is standard cartography. Who's going to be the audience? Is it going to be the general public? Because that determines how much, how, how intuitive the map has to be. I also need to know how big the map is going to be, black and white or color. All those sorts of things are really important. And then the, it comes into designing it. And so there's usually one or two things that you're really wanting the map reader to see when they see that map. Um, you know, where is the habitat for the, the mountain chickadee? And you want that to really pop. You want that to be the first thing they see. So you have to design this so that that is the, you know, the feature on the map that stands out. But as is usually the case on these conservation landscape maps, usually people want terrain or, you know, mountains and rivers and roads and cities and wilderness areas and IRAs and ACECs and all the different designations. When you think about how many different categories of protected lands we have in the United States, it's astounding. So sometimes making all of that legible on a map takes a lot of time to kind of boil it down and make the feature you need to stand out actually stand out on the map. It's very challenging. 
And that's just the cartography part. That's the communications part. If you need to get the information, you need to get a bunch of data on bird populations, water flows, water table stuff. I mean, it can get really crazy back there in your uh, hardware, your computer burning through its processor like crazy when you're loading up these huge databases that basically are the most detailed representation of what's on the ground on planet earth which we all know is an extremely complex system and you have to be very choosy about what data you work with right absolutely um there's a saying that all maps are lies because a map is um, a, ge a general is not the real world it's a representation of the real world and so there's scale and things like that involved and so you really have to determine what goes on to that map, what needs to be there, what can be left off of it. Um, so maybe you don't want every single river, maybe you just want the Rio Grande. And um, so there's a lot of that kind of data sifting. And we live now in such a data-rich environment that finding data isn't so much the issue. It's teasing out which is the best data set, which is the most current the most accurate because there will sometimes be for streams you might have three or four different versions of streams that you could add to a map and you have to figure out which is the most appropriate or the best version and it, it uh, takes a lot of time i tell i teach as well and i always tell my students you can expect to spend 75 80 percent of the time on a map or a spatial analysis just getting the data downloaded organized on your computer and kind of formatted for what you want to do. The map at the end is kind of the icing and the, the, almost the easy part. How do you describe to students the importance of the work you're teaching them to do uh, when it comes to conservation in particular? The um, human impact on the landscape is constantly changing, like the border wall is a great example. And so one of my main um, focuses is when I make something is making sure it's accurate first off because people tend to believe what they see on a map and you want it to be accurate and to give the correct interpretation. And there, there's actually ethics, you know, there's actually a series of 10 ethics that cartographers are supposed to follow. And so I think about things like that as well, making sure that um, it's, you know, when my name goes on a map that it's high quality, visually appealing and accurate. What about the pressure of, of the work that you do being used to, um, like when we were doing the Sky Island stuff, we weren't making maps. We were getting maps that already were already created, and we were, you know, black markers on mylar, and we were drawing directly on maps because a lot of the stuff that you do now was in its infancy then, and, um, and we had to get it in our own heads. And so there wasn't a computer system or anything to really, that anybody there knew how to use. And so we had to just have giant tables and maps were all over the floor. I remember the Black Range Lodge near the Gila <laughs> and uh, and doing the mapping project there for Sky Island Alliance. And it was it stunk because of all those markers. And, you know, we had to open windows and stuff because that was that's how we were doing it. And we were changing the landscape in our minds to be able to learn how to talk about it, to visualize it. Um, and then putting it on the maps was really, really remedial at the time. But without all of that visual data, without all of that, uh, it would be impossible to do what Wildlands Network has done, um, what carried on into uh, Rewilding Institute, um, Sky Island, Yellowstone to Yukon. Um, th those guys' jobs would be impossible 
without the mapping projects and products that they've put out. So you guys are super important. You won't probably ring your own bell, but I will, because I don't know how else we tell some of the stories that we're trying to tell in order to get legislation passed that we want, um, in order to dispute uh, boundary stuff or uh, anything else. It's vitally important that we bring the goods and the maps are the receipts in many cases. Yeah, and you know, really, it to me comes down to the the phrase "a picture is worth a thousand words" because a map is really a, the perfect way, intuitive way for people to understand what you're proposing or what the situation is on the ground. Because it, you can you can look at a map and and instantly, if it's made well, understand what's going on and understand how big something is or how far apart things are or how close they are, and if you were without a map and had to just describe it, I think a lot would get lost in translation. So I think a map is crucial to showing to um, congressional staff when, when you're proposing a wilderness area, for example, and how that's going to impact other other issues related to it, like grazing or wild and scenic rivers. And all of these complicated issues we have on the land are um, really best shown on a map, I think. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists, and organizers from around the world? You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends. I don't know very many people who love maps more than Dave Foreman, but we all tend to really love maps. We're, we're interested in the latest topo maps for uh, hikes, um, for ground level surveying and all that kind of stuff. And then the big planning level stuff, such as, you know, projects you've specifically been involved with, like the, the mega linkages. Um, I, I think of that kind of map where we're talking about Mexico to Canada, all the way up to Alaska um, the, and the little stuff that goes into a bigger project like Yellowstone to Yukon has probably an awful lot of individual uh, mapping layers or features within that. And certain on-the-ground groups, local groups, are uh, leading the charge for big projects like that within those big projects, just the area that they're really in charge of. Can you talk a little bit about that and um, some of the interesting things that you've that you've worked on um, that led to uh, your work being crucial to uh, getting something through, uh, maybe to Harris Canyon? Yeah, well, first off, yeah, I, I kind of grew up as, as a loving maps myself, and I have my own closet of topo maps. I've always wanted, you know, a map of wherever I go. So that's how I got into this originally. And, um, you know, working on some of those big mega linkage maps is some of the favorite maps I've ever created just because the vision is so bold and so important. And um, they end up being beautiful pieces of work. And with Harris Canyon, this is a that was a project here locally um, outside of Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I'm based, um, that I was really involved more as a citizen activist than a professional. I did make maps of that um, kind of gratis for the project. But that was a project that started in um, 2003, and I had been working with the Wildlands Project, which is now the Wildlands Network, and we had um, developed what we called a Wildlands Network design for New Mexico. 
And if we zoom out, there was the spine of the continent, which I think you mentioned. And there were, you know, a series of half a dozen wildlands network designs stitched together to form a vision for connectivity up the Rocky Mountain chain from Mexico to Canada. And the New Mexico Highlands was a ended up being a, a really robust 200-page document that was full of maps and spatial analysis for showing all the land you had to protect to protect biodiversity in the long term. And um, it was, it was uh, one of the most amazing things. It was one of the first projects I worked on at that scale and was really exciting to be part of it. And that's when I first met Dave Foreman. And that was in 2002 when we published that. And in 2003, the Wildlands Network as part of the rollout of this decided to identify the four most critical linkages well, basically the most critical linkage in every wildlands network design up the spine of the continent. And in New Mexico, it was unanimously decided that Tejeros Canyon would be, was that most critical linkage. And shortly thereafter, in New Mexico, there was this group called Wild Friends, and they um, worked with this state representative to pa pass this um, thing called House Joint Memorial 3. And that was directing Game and Fish and our Department of Transportation to collaborate on highway projects around reducing animal vehicle collisions. And on the heels of that, we organized this thing we called a critical mass workshop where we got like a hundred people. And, and it was kind of a novel thing for 2003 because we had people from the federal and state agencies and people from the conservation community, the nonprofits all gathered around for two days. And we, as a group came to a consensus on the top 30 critical linkages in the state. And Harris Canyon was nominated as one of the foremost out of that meeting. So within a year, Harris Canyon had been identified in two independent efforts as this really critical wildlife linkage that needed protecting. So myself and a series of um, concerned citizens, I'll call us, met in Harris Canyon and decided we'd form a group and we called ourselves the Harris Canyon Safe Passage Coalition. And to make a long story short, from 2004 to 2008, we met every single month up there. And we had meetings where there was you know, more than 100 of us. It was a really, had a lot of energy behind wow. it. And this is one of the biggest conservation successes in New Mexico. It had, it had some really landmark events. We were an all-volunteer organization. And we found out that DOT was going to fund a highway project on the roadway that was the barrier for wildlife moving north and south between the Manzanos and the Sandias. And so we invited DOT to our meeting and engineers love to solve a problem. And so when these DOT engineers heard our concerns about wildlife being hit in the canyon by motorists on Interstate 40, they um, decided to fund something that had never been done before, a feasibility study to study how they could address the, the animal vehicle collision problem within the confines of their highway project. And um, so we ended up working with DOT as a, a volunteer group, provided lots of comments to them, and they ended up being really open to solving this problem and not only stopping animal vehicle collisions from a public safety standpoint, but putting in mechanisms that would allow more movement for wildlife through the canyon, getting from one side of the road to the other. We actually got hired by DOT to clear brush 
underneath some of the existing underpasses to facilitate movement. And that was the first time that DOT had ever contracted with a citizen group to actually do work like that. So there were a couple of really landmark things like that that happened along the way. They ended up accepting all of our comments and doing a great job. And they ended up on a five mile stretch of highway implementing wildlife fencing with escape ramps. And in one location called Dead Man's Curve, they um, built this overland passage. It's kind of a tricky spot where wildlife come out of the Sandia Mountains to this watering hole that just happens to be situated between Interstate 40, one of the biggest east-west arteries in the country, and the little frontage road that runs along next to it. So deer in, in arid New Mexico come down out of the Sandias looking for water and know that, you know, go to this water source, which is between the two roads, and get hit on one or the other. And hmm. so they built an overland crossing with camera with cameras and these electromats, electronic cattle guards, um, that would allow deer to just cross over this roadway and the cameras were designed to pick up wildlife movement so they would if a deer was approaching the roadway the the lights would flash alerting motorists that a, a, a deer was coming and these have kind of become increasingly commonplace in the western u.s in the last 10 years but this was all finished in 2008 and it was the first such project in the state that got completed and so it was a just a massive success and it was Really exciting to be part of. What can you share about, uh, because certainly we've had enough time to do some analysis of the success of this thing. What does that look like? Is DOT or is your group or someone else in charge of keeping up that monitoring? Well, yeah, there's been a lot of lessons learned. Um, it's been a mixed bag. I'd say initially um, the cameras installed weren't ideal and we kind of lost control as a volunteer group of who DOT was going to subcontract to, to build different components of this project. And the cameras ended up being the ones that are designed in a city to pick up people speeding through an intersection. And they were sending up lots of false positives and weren't working quite right. Eventually, they got them tuned and, and were working. We did pre and post construction monitoring and found no wildlife using the underpasses pre-construction and a while afterwards, we were finding lots of um, bear and mule deer um, and smaller critters using all three of the underpasses into Harris Canyon. So the permeability issue definitely had been addressed and wildlife vehicle collisions dropped to almost zero af after all the fencing was installed. And um, there, it was really impossible to, to know how many animals get hit on the roadway because honestly, when a, a semi-truck hits a, a mule deer at 75 miles an hour, it doesn't even stop. In New Mexico, dead wildlife are only recorded when a police officer is called to the scene of the accident in which wildlife's been involved. And, and so we know that it's severely undercounted. But afterwards, there was no, um, no collisions being recorded for several years. But what, what happened then was gradually people moved away from DOT. Our, everyone in my organization ended up just because of life issues leaving Albuquerque and I'm, I'm the last one left from it. And mm. so it was too much for me to keep track of. And I had spent something like a thousand volunteer hours on that project over five years and I was a little burned out. And so I stepped away for a couple of years and came to find out that eventually the electromat started falling apart and the maintenance wasn't being done. And DOT had forgotten to 
include this in their maintenance budget. And um, so there's been an effort with Mark Watson at Game and Fish over the last several years to get some more funding pushed into this and get things improved and and they've done just that so i think it's in good shape again but it it kind of you know was initially successful then was suddenly you know very unsuccessful and is back to being a a good project again so a lot of lessons learned along the way was it really easy in the case i mean the way that you described this particular thing you knew where all the animals were going to go and I, I assume that's probably true for all of the overpass things that you're starting to see now, like where they decide to put them. But how much probably, you know, in the mapping, the GIS, the planning um, ancillary to the obvious was done or needs to be done to really detect the the big flows that, you know, where these projects need to be located? Yeah, mapping is a huge part of that. And it's something that I really enjoy doing. You can model potential wildlife corridors. It's complicated and it's an evolving science, but generally speaking, it, it um, you know, if it's done well, it, 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 it's very successful in showing where animals are likely to cross. And that's kind of a course cut. And then you actually have to be on the ground doing roadkill counts and putting up cameras and, and seeing where, because you, there may be animals successfully crossing deserted highways at night um, that you're, you don't, you're not aware of. It takes some on-the-ground monitoring to really understand what will be the best solution on the ground, but the the GIS mapping analysis is a huge first cut to narrow things down to understand what sections of highway um, are going to be optimal for um, a corridor to be located. One of the more popular recent things that I've seen, although I can't remember if it was Center for Biodiversity or someone else, shared a map of the border wall and three or four main arteries where jaguars would travel from Mexico to the U.S., into the U.S., and that coincides with the next phase of the border wall construction, cutting across all three or four of those. Was that a mapping project you were involved with, or do you know that data? No, I've seen the data, but I wasn't involved with it. But um, kind of going back to Harris Canyon, I had modeled cougar corridors for New Mexico, I was really excited when um, one of the cougar corridors I identified was like one one of the hot spots that the feasibility study that DOT had conducted in the canyon identified as a hot spot. So my model and reality corresponded perfectly within to Harris Canyon. You you probably know where to go when somebody says I have this thing in the Gila I want to do. Well, you've probably got thousands of files already for the Gila Wilderness, for other projects that you've worked on, but you also know if they're asking for new data, where to go most of the time. What's that like? Like if they want to show a layer and you're like, I don't know what the population of Quatamundis is or, you know, like how do you even begin to uh, work on stuff like that? I think it just comes with experience. I've been doing it for so many years. I do have, you know, just a library of, of data layers. So, you know, I have all the, all the wilderness areas and wild, you know, wild and scenic rivers and ACECs and wilderness, you know, all all these different layers I have, um, already. And, um, I have a lot of wildlife layers as well. Um, sometimes you need to update them, but I I know where all the sources for those are. Unfortunately, you know, some of those in with our current administration have, have been taken offline. Their data is not quite as available as it was a few years ago. And I'm hoping that changes, but you know, with a little bit of experience, you learn where to look. And so tracking down the data 
isn't so so tricky for me these days but it still takes time to to format it and set it up so that the resulting map is what everyone needs it to be i don't know what the what it's called um but what, but this new phenomenon and the cheaper ever ever cheaper uh equipment for camera trapping wildlife uh cameras um, those are all providing data points all over the place. And I just keep hearing of more biologists and more organizations that are, I mean, even Sky Island Alliance has cameras now. I mean, that I'm, I'm laughing because we didn't have a budget for anything when I was there as the director. And, <laughs> and back when I was there, one of those camera traps was, a, I think I priced it at about 3,500 bucks. And it was the most remedial kind of, you know, camera trap. Nowadays, they can go straight if you have a data plan and you're that well funded, they'll go straight into a database. And I think that's really cool. Have you been involved in any of the projects where um, a lot of your data points are the things they're pulling off of these little networks of uh, trail cams? Unfortunately, no. I know about it, but I've never ha had the opportunity to work with that kind of data, but it looks like a lot of fun. And something related to that is uh, GPS collars on wildlife, mm -hmm. um, many many of which will also stream you know real time locations and can give you an idea of the home range of the animal and you know where they go. And I've seen a lot of examples of that kind of data being used and things you can do with it, um, but I sadly have not had the personal experience with it. Well, I don't know what all you people are doing with your trail cam data, but you need to depict it. And I know a guy, <laughs> so that's all I'm going to say. Yeah, and I can look at stuff like that endlessly, but it bores me to tears to think about a, an Excel spreadsheet of all of that stuff. I'm not interested at all in any of it until you or someone like you puts it on a map and makes it, you know, something I can <laughs> engage with. But it's it's wildly interesting, and I'm so glad that the technology, the collaring, um, I'm sure has come down as well. But that's all providing data that. You know, I, I think also probably 20 or 30 years ago, it took an awful lot of reliance, a lot more reliance on government stuff because government was the only one funding studies because studies were very, very expensive technology wise, expertise wise, whatever it must have been. But now there's so much more citizen data. I mean, a lot of organizations are just handing out cameras because they're cheap enough in case somebody breaks one that they can do that. And you just sign one out and you have this little area that you're in charge of and you go you know, check your camera trap for data and everything. I mean, from your perspective, that has to help to be able to go, all right, well, now we have a lot more rich diversity. If the government's cutting something off, trying to hide something, I mean, I can't imagine the map data and everything they're hiding on the border wall. If it wasn't for Lycan Jordal and some of the people from Center for Biodiversity updating their Twitter feed, being on the ground, watching them cut up organ pipe cactus, no, we wouldn't know anything about it. And I imagine that might be one of the blind spots in the data for uh, for you if you were working on a project down there. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, the key there is um, data is great, but people need to collect it in such a way that it is become standardized and, and easily ingested and used. Um, sometimes that's the part that gets overlooked. Um, person A might be collecting it different than person B, and then that ends up... Um, not being so helpful, but whenever the, you know, as long as the data can be collected in a standardized way, it's super useful. In my career, it seems to me when I first started, all the environmental nonprofits were the ones leading the charge with habitat modeling and wildlife corridor analysis. And that has really changed. And I think that's why I don't do as much work for a lot of groups anymore is because it seems like a lot of groups are now staffed with attorneys 
and they're not doing their own science and analysis as much as they were, say, 15 years ago. They are instead relying on the state game departments and the Forest Service and the BLM to do some of that work. And um, I, th- I, I kind of hope that changes back because I think mm. some of there was a group I remember, American Wildlands up in Montana, which was doing fantastic work in the early 2000s and um, you know, groundbreaking leading edge science. And, and I don't see that from nonprofits these days. That's extremely dangerous because those same nonprofits are suing the BLM and all of their sources uh, for all kinds of mismanagement and even corruption. And <laughs> it's like, wait, and then you're going to depend on them to put together, you know, and give you the right data. I mean, lying with data is one of the main things that uh, a lot of these people do. <laughs> yeah. Or wow, even that's, with, that's... withholding the data. Sometimes, you know, it's sometimes it can be difficult to get data from a state agency without filing a, a long, you know, drawn out state records request or something like that. One of the other reasons that we are so interested in getting all of our stuff collected again, the projects that all the different people in rewilding, starting with Dave, that have been involved with over the last couple decades, there's not a lot of it on rewilding. And we're, we're like, wait a minute, this is like a problem. We seem to have fallen into same, the same kind of thing in a, in a way because uh, that really should be front and center, which we're working right now to rectify, starting with you today on this show. And inviting you to be on the Rewilding Leadership Council because you know where so many of the bodies are buried. In fact, I don't know <laughs> that there's probably a better person to have on our Leadership Council with, in that regard than you. So thanks again <laughs> for being here. <laughs> oh, it's my pleasure. I was really excited to be asked by um, John Davis. And and uh, I'm excited to uh, work on some maps and, and um, rectify that situation. Kurt, talk about your website real quick and, and tell everybody where they can find you. I'm at birdseyeviewgis.com, and on Twitter, I'm, I'm Geo Menke. I'm quite active on Twitter. So um, I'll probably be you know, posting a lot of uh, geeky, mappy stuff, but if you're into that, um, follow me. I am available for any kind of mapping project people have, so um, let me help you. <laughs> yeah, you'll have to uh, get in line behind rewilding, but yes, use Kurt. Uh, <laughs> you wouldn't believe, yes, you would. You've worked with organizations long enough who are geeky about it like we are to know that we have a list a mile long that we couldn't finish in our lifetimes of all of the things we would love to see mapped because we're all map geeks. And yeah, I think that's fact, what's going to really appeal to everybody about this show is that uh, it's going to activate all the map geeks that listen to this um, that didn't even maybe know they were map geeks, but they find that it's odd that they have closet full of of topo maps and and everything else because there are a lot of people out there running around thinking they're normal you're not you're a map geek <laughs> in fact you know um talking about dave foreman i i think one of the most amazing maps i've ever seen i think it's in his book um continental conservation perhaps um it's kind of like a back back of a napkin map of all the wild areas in north america and the crazy thing is that off the top of his head it's about 90 percent as accurate as you could do with a, a modern gis system these days and uh, I love that kind of thing. D- Dave has the best map mind of any conservationist I've ever met. It's creepy. I'm glad you noticed that. I know other people have too, but but nobody really dwells on it too much because it freaks you out. You can literally ask that dude about tiny little weird points on the map, and he will just open up like a database. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, I 
you know, and he'll tell you the birds he's seen there. Like he'll, he remembers every single thing. It is crazy. If you could just map with your mind, he wouldn't, you know, he would <laughs> just plug him into your computer and you'd have more data than you could handle. Yeah, you're absolutely right. He's an, an amazing individual. Yeah. One of my heroes. Well, thanks again, Kurt. And I know I'm going to have you back. We're going to talk about all kinds of real fun, geeky and fun stuff. And glad you have you on board. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.